It's the Farmer to Farmer podcast, episode 12, and this is your host, Chris Blanchard. Today, I'm welcoming Shannon Jones of Nova Scotia's Broad Fork Farm. Shannon and her partner, Brian Dick, farm two acres of vegetables and cut flowers on a 15-acre parcel and sell to farmer's markets, restaurants, and retail food stores. Shannon and I had a great conversation about value, caterpillar tunnels, and political engagement. The Farmer to Farmer podcast is sponsored by Vermont Compost, founded by organic crop growing professionals committed to meeting the need for high quality composts and compost based living soil mixes for certified organic plant production. The podcast is also sponsored by Audible. Discover the world of audiobooks and absorb yourself in the latest in business management texts, farming essays, or all three volumes of The Lord of the Rings. Get a free audiobook download and a 30 day free trial at audibletrial.com slash farmer to farmer. Welcome to the Farmer to Farmer podcast, Shannon. Thank you, Chris. Thanks so much for inviting me. I've been really enjoying your podcast. It's great. Thank you. I'm so excited to have you here. I mean, this is um this is kind of a big a big milestone for the Farmer to Farmer podcast. You're our first international guest. Uh, I, you know, so from up there on the on the Nova Scotia New Brunswick border, right? Yeah. Okay. So um, now just. I, as an American, I'm I'm woefully inadequate when it comes to Canadian geography. So, um, can you kind of help us help us place where your farm is? Sure, we're we're pretty close to Maine, actually. Um, New Brunswick Falls, basically just just on top of Maine, and then Nova Scotia kind of curls around. And I think I think your farm is at about forty five degrees of latitude. Yeah, about that. Okay, and and. Now, I mean, Nova Scotia and, and New Brunswick, I mean, so we met out at, when I was out at the, the ACORN conference, the, which is the, uh, the Atlantic Canadian organic regional network. Okay. That's a mouthful. Um, but that was in, that was in Halifax, Nova Scotia, which to me felt like it was kind of out there on, on the wild edge of things. Uh, I mean, even in the city, it sort of had this. I don't know. It wasn't quite a frontier feel, but sort of like, you know, if you if you if you went off the edge of the of Nova Scotia, that there just wasn't a whole lot further to go. Yeah, well, I mean, Halifax is a port city. It's our biggest city in Nova Scotia. Our farm is basically on the opposite side of Halifax. We don't we don't live very close to to Halifax, and uh, essentially, Nova Scotia is r- really a, a rural province. I would say, with Halifax being our, our main city, traditionally a, a port city. And uh, yeah, there's, I mean, it's right on the ocean. If you go anywhere past Halifax towards the ocean, it's just, you're going to get to to England, I guess. I guess yeah. so. So now, and 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 your farm, and and you should tell us a little bit about about the the size and the and the situation of your of your operation but you're not you guys don't market into Halifax at all right we don't know so we we live as you said pretty close to the border with New Brunswick but on the Nova Scotia side so we primarily market into New Brunswick our farm is is a small farm there's just two of us who own and operate it me and and my partner Brian uh, we've got 15 acres, and we use under two acres for primarily vegetables, but we also have been increasing our cut flower um, production every year. And then at any given moment, we'd have about two acres also in cover crops or green manures or somehow preparing itself um, to be put into the rotation. Our farm was... Uh, had been a hay farm for about 10 years or more maybe before we purchased it. So there's always, there's always a lot of work to, to put new fields into preparation. Um, but both of us work on the farm full time and it provides, it provides us with our livelihoods. Um, and we really, we focus on growing, I guess growing things that we, we love. We grow things that we think are beautiful and delicious and unique and interesting we like knowing the stories behind the seeds that we grow. And I guess we think that if we love these plants, whether they're for eating or enjoying as a bouquet, for example, we think that, that other people will love them too. Which actually kind of follows on one of the 
first things we, we were on a panel together, a pricing panel, uh, there at the conference in Halifax. And, and you, you made the comment there that we see valuing ourselves and having others value us as a risk management strategy for our farm. Yeah. And, and that was, that was such a, I, I don't know. I found that to be a really powerful statement. And the, that, that idea of, you know, we so often we talk about risk management in terms of, you know, irrigation and storage and drainage and, and, but here you were talking about actual, not even just a marketing strategy, but a, but a strategy for, um, for how you approach your farm and how you expect others to approach your farm as a, as a way to, to mitigate risk. Yeah. So I had mentioned I was part of a pricing panel because, I think as small scale and organic farmers or direct market farmers, we put a lot of pressure on ourselves um, that I think is that we want to put maybe, but we put a lot of pressure on ourselves to fix all the problems of the world. So the problems of, of um, soil, soil health and, and human health and, and biodiversity and, and public education about around food and farm and, and rural re- revitalization and then, and we also want it to be cheap enough so that no person can say that it's too expensive. Um, but we already have a cheap food system, and that cheap food system has put cheapness of food at its core already, and that hasn't solved any of the other issues, only worsened them. And so I think that we need to realize that farmers are not the only ones who want to do their part to be the change they want to see in this world. Our customers are also being the change, and, and they want to see locally-based ecological farms thriving. They want to support the same things we're working towards, and they don't want to lose any more farmers who are stewarding their land with these same goals. In fact, they want to see more farmers doing this. So it's kind of around the idea of how can what, what will keep us going as, as young farmers and also what will attract new farmers. So that idea really came, I guess, from thinking about what keeps us going, what keeps us motivated, and what will keep us as farming for the long term. Like at this point, we we plan to to farm for the rest of our lives. We we hope to to attend that market even for a, a long portion of our lives. And so, while we we need to get paid money, this is what we've chosen as our as our career. So we need to get paid for it. It's also about what money represents, I guess. And when people are happy to pay us the prices we charge to get a fair wage, they're also communicating to us that they value the work that we do. And that feels good to us. And so that keeps us going and that motivates us. And it also contributes to us valuing our own work by basically, I guess, upping our morale. And... I mean, there's other ways too, of course, hearing people express their thanks and and developing friendships with our customers also contributes to feeling valued. And our sense of value can't just be put onto our customers to fulfill or our friends. There's other things that we do, um, I guess, to to mitigate against the risk of, of not valuing what we do in our work. So even by things like attending farming conferences and, and workshops and visiting other farms and continuing our professional development in general reinforces our, our choice to farm constantly. And that's worth a lot to us. So even when we choose how we're going to sell and who we sell to, it helps us mitigate that risk of, of devaluing what we do. And, and if we were de- if we felt devalued and if, if we were devaluing ourselves, I don't think we could, we could keep farming. So that's part of the reason that we, we attend this incredible market and we sell to restaurants who are amazing and who get it and stores who value us and the food that we grow. And that feels good. And that, that feeling keeps us going. I think if we were trying to compete with the idea that food is a commodity and that a carrot is a carrot and that we needed to compete by lowering our prices and not asking for a fair price, then I don't know how long we would keep farming. Um, I don't have a stat to offer, but I've heard that the biggest reason for farm failure is personal. So whether it's burnout or family or relationship problems, I think that relates a lot to this sense of, of value. Yeah, I, I, 
my my experience and my my conversations with other farmers would back that up entirely that that it's not necessarily a, an inability to make a living at it it's it's all of the other pressures that go along with it you know, i think i think you guys are really um you're really on target to be to be focusing on that uh, on that value proposition and i just, i really i i just i love i love that word value and i just i love what you've done with it there um you talked about the about your your market so can you you guys don't have a huge market and you're not going into a, a an urban mega center with your with your produce you're going into a i mean it's not a tiny marketplace but it's a relatively small marketplace yeah um i mean yeah, so it's not a huge marketplace um, compared to larger Canadian cities or, or large American cities. Um, it's definitely a mid-sized city. It's actually two cities, I guess, kind of in one. We sell to an area um, or to two cities called Dieppe and Moncton that are basically side by side. And Moncton is, is more of a of the English city and, and, and Dieppe is, is a has a higher French population and it's really hard to tell exactly um, at what point you've entered one or, or left the other. They're, they're right next to each other. And so our customers that would come to our market would be from both of these cities. And, and even though they're, they're both small cities together, they make up a larger, a larger population base. And, and with our small farm, we don't really need to, to have all the customers in the world. We really, our focus is really on sharing our values and sharing, sharing what we, what we think is important and why, um, why we think that the food that we're growing is, is the best, um, the best that we can do and, and why we are so into the different varieties that we're growing and the different crops. Um, if we share those things, then the people who, who want that, will come and, and that's really enough for us. So as long as we can do a good enough job sharing and have people hear us, then then we'll have enough customers, I guess. And and you guys do the farmers market there in in Dieppe and then you also are selling to restaurants and grocery stores? That's right. Yeah. About about roughly what percentage is going where? Yeah, so I would say um, it changes throughout the year, but I think at by year end, the market really contributed about seventy five percent of our gross sales. Okay. Yeah, it's huge. Okay. I mean, it's a great market. It's really it's a popular market. A lot of people attend it. It's actually a year round market, even though we're not going year round right now. Um, most of it is indoors. Um, there's a large parking lot that's never big enough. It's it's just an incredible market filled with with people who, who love food and love cooking and, and are excited about farmers markets and farmers. Was that part of why you chose to be where you are geographically? Um, I would like to say yes, cause that would make me sound really smart, <laughs> <laughs> but we moved. So neither Brian nor I are from Nova Scotia. Uh, we both, um, I guess we had both, we both grew up in Ontario. Um, I grew up both in Manitoba and Ontario, but I had traveled quite a bit working on different farms in different areas. And one year, a few years before Brian and I started our farm, I had worked as a farm manager on a, on a farm in Nova Scotia. And then after that, I, I decided that since I felt like I was close to my um, close to starting my own business, my own farm business, I wanted to take at least one year and go back to being an apprentice, so that I could remove myself from res- like total responsibility and enjoy learning about the things I still felt I needed to learn. And so I went to Southern Ontario to to work on a far- or to apprentice on a farm there. And that was when I met Brian, but I always had it in my head that I wanted to move back to Nova Scotia. I loved the, I loved the ruralness of it. I loved that there was more trees, that there was the ocean nearby. Um, I loved the, the community and the people that I had met. And so I always had it in my mind that I wanted to move back to Nova Scotia. So when Brian and I decided to start our farm, I told him, I would really like to to move to Nova Scotia. 
And so we ended up leasing land from the farmers I had worked for before or the, the landowners that I had worked for before. And the first time that Brian ever stepped foot out in Nova Scotia was when he came out in the fall to plant our garlic. And, uh, wow. yeah, <laughs> that's love yeah. right there. And it kind of unexpectedly and, and amazingly at the end of that first season, we ended up buying a farm, which is where we are now. And by bought, I actually mean we got a mortgage. Um, we didn't right. pay for it outright, but, um, yeah, so we we definitely did not expect that we would end up buying something so soon and we're not the farm that we purchased is is not even close to the farm that we had been leasing. Yeah, it's in a completely different county. We're no longer going to the markets that we were going to when we were leasing land. And oh, wow. yeah, so it's it's a it's a huge it was a huge change and um yeah, we just, it was a, a great opportunity with a, a beautiful small farm that came up for sale at a price that, that I guess we could get a mortgage for. And uh, so, so yeah, here we are. I think that anybody that really takes credit for buying a farm in the right place is, um, uh, well, 90% of them are just, they're just BSing their way through stuff. You, you kind of, I, I know most people end up getting, getting a piece of land and, and, or getting into a geographical area and then figuring out how to make that work. Um, you know, it's that, it's that funny intersection, right? I mean, it's a, I mean, you've got a clear sense of your business as a business, but it's also is a lifestyle choice. And I think those, those two things intersect very strongly with where, where we choose to live. Yeah. I mean, we knew that we had options, um, that there was, there were plate, like that there was some way we could anticipate marketing our produce. Um, but when we moved here, we, we were not clear on exactly, um, what our, our market was going to be. In our first season, we went to two different markets that were in total opposite directions. Um, the one that we're still going to an hour in one direction. The other one was an hour and a half in the other direction. And, and by the end of that year, we had decided to really focus on this one direction, I guess. And so, yeah. Why did you decide to focus on the, on the Mon- the, the Moncton Dieppe marketplace rather than the others, rather than where you were before? Well, it actually had a lot to do with, um, with the value thing that I was talking about. When we would go to that market, we would hear a lot of people, you know, asking about, I don't know, you know, why, why is this so expensive when that person has it for, you know, 25 cents cheaper or something. And, and there was less of a, I mean, we definitely had amazing customers there too, but the morale um, we did, I guess we didn't feel valued as much and it felt like more, more work in terms of, you know, convincing people of, of the value and, and it, yeah, it, it didn't seem to suit what we love to do. It was more of a, I guess the market had more traditional taste in, in vegetables and, like the kinds of things that maybe are easy to find at a grocery store. And that's not really, that wasn't really our vision. And I think those things are also hard to, they're hard to make money on because if somebody can be like, Oh, I got a tomato here and I got a tomato in the grocery store. Yeah. It's hard to, it's hard to justify a higher price. I think. Yeah. And I mean, for us, we weren't excited about the prospect of growing, you know, all red mid-sized tomatoes and all iceberg lettuce and, um, you know, only orange carrots, for example, we really, we really get so excited about cool varieties and, and things that look interesting. And, and so we wanted our customers to also, to also kind of, you know, come along on that, on, on that journey. And so, yeah, it just, it was basically based on, I guess, morale and, and what we could, what, what we could expect. Um, yeah, I guess actually in Richard Wiswell's book, the organic farmers business handbook, I think it's called, he has a, a yes. DVD in the back of it that has a really great spreadsheet about what it costs to attend a market. 
and you put in everything like the, the labor hours of, of filling your, your truck at the beginning at, at your farm, you know, the labor hours of driving, unloading, standing at market, coming home, unloading, and then also, you know, uh, depreciating the costs or the, the, the equipment that you have at market. So obviously there's like your van, for example, but even our, our market table, our tablecloth, you know, we have to replace that. We have to replace um, quart containers or uh, pint containers and um, all kinds of things that are, are really just associated with the market depreciating that also. And of course, those costs aren't always huge, but they, they make something up. And so we realized that it cost us about $400 to go to each market. And at one of them, we felt, you know, it's definitely worth it. And at the other one, we felt, you know, we were always making above that, but we weren't sure if that, if the amount that we were making above our cost to attend, um, was worth it based on, you know, not feeling, not feeling pumped at the end of the day, you know, kind of feeling like, Oh, you know, some people, some people questioned our pricing. And I think, I mean, at least I know for me, I'm really sensitive. I feel like if somebody, if somebody says something about, you know, tr- trying to get a cheaper price or something, it really hurts my feelings. <laughs> and so I'm just trying to avoid, I guess, um, having too many interactions like that. Cause I spend pretty much the whole next week thinking about all the, the things I should have said to, you know, to that person that would have made them understand. But in that moment, I never have a, a great comeback. <laughs> I've always I've always wondered if anybody's ever said anything at farmers market to the person that asks about price that really made that person understand. You know, I, I mean, I I think sometimes you're just we like to have comebacks to it, but I think sometimes that's just a it's the only value there is the snappy comeback. Yeah, you, you're not going to somebody who's focused on price, you're not going to change their mind. Um, yeah, possibly. I mean, I, mean, I always I, I, and I don't necessarily mean like a, a witty comeback, but I sometimes think that for some people, if I could explain it um, really well, that they might understand. But in that moment, I just I, I can't think of anything really meaningful. I always think that I should make a script, actually. But luckily at our markets, we we don't really I, I don't think I would need the script. It would come up so seldomly. Well, and I know, I, I don't think that's an uncommon experience. We certainly found that, uh, when I started my farm, uh, Rock Spring farm in Decorah, Iowa, is that we, we tried marketing at our local farmer's market and, and an hour and a half away in Rochester. And, and we had very much that same experience that they were, they were two very different markets. And, and even though attending the market in Decorah was a lot less expensive in terms of time and, and overall expense, it really, um, we just, we didn't have that marketplace that valued us. And, and I think, I think this is a real challenge when, when people are talking about, about scaling up and I, you know, there's a, there's a lot of pressure around this idea now that you need to get bigger and we need to be, we need to be moving into the grocery stores and we need to be servicing the institutional marketplaces and we need to get more efficient. We need to get larger and we need to, we need to uh, be able to, to lower our prices. But I think you really do run into that, that situation where, where people value your produce less and, and it, and from a, from a risk standpoint, and I, and several of my other guests have commented on this too, that, that from a risk standpoint, having those relationships with your customers that are really built, not on, not on providing the cheapest product, but on providing the best product and providing a meaningful connection, that that's a much more secure place to be. Yeah, I think so. I mean, when we sell to somebody who will directly take that home and eat it with their family, I think it's easier to convey the message that they're not just buying a carrot. You know, they're buying um, they're buying all kinds of values that they that they hope and dream for in the world for their, their for the the future that they're going to leave for their children and grandchildren. You know, they're buying they're buying a story. They're buying. Yeah, they're buying hope, I guess. But when you buy a carrot from the grocery store and doesn't have a, a name or a face or a set of values associated with it, it really just does become a carrot. And and I think that takes away from the enjoyment and the experience. But I think that we need to recognize that that having, you know, being able to 
to take something home and, and know what it represents, I think that has a value more than than competing with the prices, I don't know, from the wholesale auctions, I guess. I love that. Shannon, I'm going to break in here for a word from our sponsors. The Farmer to Farmer podcast is sponsored by Vermont Compost. Vermont Compost potting soils are a really special product. I used Vermont Compost Fort V as a blocking mix and potting soil for over 12 years on my farm, and we grew some great transplants with it. I mean, really great transplants year after year. At a time in the organic movement when we're seeing more and more companies jumping on the bandwagon, Vermont Compost is a reminder of the art and the craft of making potting soil. They mix an incredible diversity of ingredients into the compost that forms the basis of their potting soil, incorporating many kinds of manures along with plant materials and food waste that foster structure and aeration in the, com- in the compost. One thing I've always appreciated about Vermont Compost is their ability to put out a consistent product year after year. And in something that's subject to as many variables as market farming, it's nice to have something that you can count on. VermontCompost.com. The Farmer to Farmer podcast is also sponsored by Audible, where you can get a free audiobook when you sign up for a 30-day free trial at audibletrial.com slash farmer to farmer. I do this podcast, so I clearly think there's power in the spoken word, especially because of the ability to get something else done while you're absorbing the content. Whether you're listening to a book on managing employees, the Lord of the Rings trilogy, or a romance novel. I didn't listen to any romance novels. I love listening when I'm on the road and I spent years and years of tractor time plugged into selections from Audible when I didn't always have the time to read. It's so easy now that you probably carry an iDevice or an Android with you just about everywhere that you go. And Audible has over 100,000 titles that you can choose from. Just go to audibletrial.com slash farmer to farmer to get your free audiobook download. And now back to Shannon Jones of Broad Fork Farm. So I'd like to I'd like to pivot here and talk and and get a get a little bit more into into your farm operation because you mentioned you guys have two acres of vegetables and and cut flowers and then two acres of cover crops. Mm-hmm. Um, that's a pretty that's a pretty micro operation. Yeah, it definitely is. Our our dreams are always to um, improve upwards rather than expanding outwards. And so we still see so much increased revenue potential from the size that we're at that it wouldn't make sense for us to to grow. Um, there's also just two of us. It definitely this size can keep us can keep us happily busy. Um, and if we decided to grow outward, we would likely need to to look to having staff. And it becomes risky, I would say. Like if at this stage in our career, we're, we're still young. We're still, you know, every winter we, we rethink our, our vision and where we're, we're headed. And if we were to, to require a staff team right now and, and provide for their livelihoods as well, the farm would probably grow. We would need more um, equipment, more tools, more infrastructure to pay for all of these people's livelihoods, including our own. And then what happens if we say in the future, oh, actually, we want to go back to just being two of us. You know, it's really hard to go backwards. And we learned that a lot um, just from our experience with with working for, for other farmers or, you know, talking to other farmers. Um, it's always really hard to go backwards. And, and so at this point, we're still, we're still taking it slow and really focusing on, on that goal of, you know, that this farm is providing us with our livelihood and, and that's what we want to, to maintain right now. And and there's other parts of the farm that we want to build before we might consider having employees and, and changing it up. So what are when you talk about instead of expanding outwards, expanding upwards, what are some of the things that you're doing on your farm to, to expand upwards? How are you really maximizing the, the value from what you're getting on a per acre basis? Yeah, well, well, I mean, there's lots of things, I guess. Um, learning from year to year always increases, um, you know, learning more, more about what our farm can do always increases what we can do the following year. Building our soil always increases. We do this exercise in the winter where we think about 
um, all the different, I guess we might call a system on our farm. So the greenhouse seeding might be a system. Um, let me think the wash station would be a system perhaps. Um, tillage in general might be a system. So we, marketing, I guess, would be a system, even bookkeeping. So we kind of break things out into these chunks and then we think, what's the biggest or what's the most obvious bottleneck or what's the bottleneck that we most want to work on for this next year? And and sometimes they're really small, um, small things. Like in our in our greenhouse, we are really frustrated by having hoses on the ground and so we bought a, a high hose watering system and this is our, our first spring using it and we're so happy and it's so great and we're, we're really happy that we invested and it wasn't an expensive an expensive system but it just makes us feel better um as watering in the greenhouse for example and so just little things that might feel you know what is the thing that it could be maybe a, a, even a, a mental barrier. What's the thing that I most don't want to do? Um, what's the thing that right. I'm avoiding doing? <laughs> and then how can I make it so it's, you know, more fun or less annoying? Uh, yeah. So I think it's one of the really fun parts about running your own business is that, that you can make investment decisions based on not just on like where are the inefficiencies and where am I going to maximize my return on investment? But, but you can also look at things and go like, what bugs me? Yeah. You know, what, what's going to make me, what's going to make me happy. Yeah. And, and, uh, and, and, and put, you know, not a not insignificant sum towards, towards those kinds of things. Yeah. You know, if you, if necessary. And often those so. things also increase, can, can increase revenues or decrease expenses um, because labor is such a huge expense that even even though we're not paying out like out any labor, we're always thinking about the cost of our labor and and so yeah, often those well and that's oh I'm sorry <laughs> that's that's something that that you guys I mean you're you're you very clearly have a, a real sense of your of your business as a, or of your, of your farm as a business. Um, how are you valuing your labor in a small two person operation where you're not paying for help? How do we labor it or how do we, um, yeah, so that's, it's a tricky question because we value our labor higher than we are technically getting at the end of the year. So our, our, what we, so in the in the spreadsheet for going to market with Richard Wiswell, we would value when we were doing that spreadsheet, we would value our labor at probably a higher amount than we actually need to get, um, or even necessarily want to get. I mean, at this stage, at this stage, there's a lot of value in us putting, you know, any money that we don't need um, personally in terms of our, our personal expenses and also um, our savings, there's, there's a lot of benefit in, in putting, putting money back into the business. And so at the end of the year, our, our net profit doesn't actually reflect necessarily what we valued our labor at, but we value our labor um, we value our labor higher. You know, we, we spent a lot of time trying to, to learn we, or we were very intentional about learning, um, learning our craft, I guess, before we started our business. And of course we're still, we're still totally beginners. And we, I think that our hope is to always have a beginner's mind, but we, we put a lot of money into professional development. And, and so we do want to, increase the amount that we value our labor at. Um, but that doesn't necessarily mean we need to have that sitting in our bank account at the end of the year and paying taxes on that higher amount. During our pre-show chat, when we were getting ready to, to turn on the recorder, you mentioned that the, that it was, uh, here in the last week of April, it was actually snowing where you are. Um, can you, can you tell us some about, you know, as, as we're looking at this, how you, how you increase your value per acre, can you tell us about some of the season extension strategies that you've got? Cause you must, you must have them if you're, 
if you're uh, getting ready to go to market next week, which you also mentioned was was on the horizon here. Yeah. So yeah. So it's snowing right now, but that is not typical for um, for the end of April. Um, often, I think I think looking back in our records, we're about two, almost three weeks behind in the fields from typical years. Um, the snow that's falling right now isn't sticking, but we do still have some snow on the ground. Um, so we have. Right now, we have a high tunnel that's 24 by 100 that's pretty much bursting with greens. And so that's going to make up a lot of what goes to the market in the next few weeks. Um, we also have we have six caterpillar tunnels, although um, not all of them are up right now. So we just put the plastic up on one of them. And the the other ones, some of them are in the process of being moved or or something, but uh, we use these caterpillar tunnels, which are really fairly easy to put up and not not particularly expensive. Um, and these caterpillar tunnels, these are the ones that are that are maybe they're they're about six feet tall and about about ten feet wide, and and you move them around. You actually move them from place to place every year, right? Yeah, I mean, we don't actually move ours every year. Um, okay. Sometimes we do, sometimes we don't. Sometimes we've left the plastic up over the winter and sometimes not. Our tunnels are, are a little bit more narrow than, than some people um, might do with the same length. Um, and because of the narrowness, that means that the, the, it's a bit of a steeper slope. So if we put in, if we put our, our bows in at a four foot spacing, and if it's not a crazy winter like this past winter was, it's not too hard to um, to deal with the snow. But uh, yeah, they're they're about ten ten feet wide, and ours are about seven feet tall. And I mean, you can make them in any kind of size you want. Most of ours are around 150 feet long. Um, but I mean, they can easily be. 50 feet long or less. Um, we've actually done some caterpillar tunnel workshops on our farm, which pretty much helps helps us put up our tunnels. But people that have gone <laughs> away after doing the workshop have put tunnels up on their own after they see how easy it is. And and we always um, we always share the information of where we bought the materials and what the costs were, so that all the research that that we spent time doing to to figure out where the 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 best deals were in our area. People can can benefit from that research too, or else it goes to waste, I guess. Because research yeah. often takes a long time. Right, right. So can you can you tell us? I mean, we're on radio here. Um, I mean, to be obviously, if we had a picture, that'd be great. But but for those of us who aren't real familiar with how the caterpillars tunnels are are put together, can you can you kind of elaborate on that? on that process and, and what the end results are? Sure. So um, for pictures, we, ha- we have written a blog post about this um, actually for two years. The second year that we wrote it, which was last year, we wrote about the updates that we had done to change it based on our experience with them. But basically, we're just putting rebar in the ground at, say, I guess six-foot spacing along both sides. Then we'll take a 20-foot PVC pipe and just put uh, put it over one rebar and then bend it over to the rebar on the other side of what the tunnel will be. So then there's these PVC pipes all the way along on these rebars and uh, then we put a roll of, of plastic over top and the, the plastic gets held down on either side with kind of a a rebar stake and what we call kind of like a, a ponytail where we wrap the plastic around. Um, yeah, I guess in the, the way you might put a, a ponytail in your hair, but, and then okay. in between the PVC pipes, there are ground anchors that hold that hold rope and that rope gets crisscrossed all the way along the, the caterpillar tunnels and that's what holds it down. And, and we pulled the, the rope pretty tight, and that's really important. Last year, we had, during hurricane season, we lost one of the, the plastic, uh, one of the, yeah, one of the plastic on the, one of our tunnels got ripped off because I don't think we had 
we had pulled the, the rope tight enough. So pulling the rope is really important. And, um, yeah, and so then it ends up looking like a caterpillar with the segmented body, and that's why they're called caterpillar tunnels. And ours are pretty much, our, our inspiration was... Um, was Ted Blomgren's farm in New York State and the way that he put up his tunnels. We went to visit them on a really, really windy day and they were doing great and and that made a big impression on us. And besides the hurricane last year, where we only lost one, so that was good, our tunnels right. have also been um, been exposed to pretty windy windy weather and they've done well. So we're pretty we're pretty happy overall. In our first season actually um, once our seedlings had had come, had come up, we used a caterpillar tunnel for transplants, and so. Oh really? Yeah. I mean, okay. before if, before a, a farm has too much infrastructure, they can be used, you know, in, in various ways, and they're not not too expensive. That's great. So now, are you are you growing in those? Uh, are you? extending the season with greens in the spring and, and, and in the fall, or are you primarily using those for summer crops? Yeah. So, um, most of them will have a spring and a summer crop. Um, it changes every year. One year we had them all filled with, with a spinach and, and that was overwintered. And so we kept them up all year. This year, they'll probably have some of the early greens, especially because our spring is really struggling to come. They're going to have more spring crops for our early markets. And then, yeah, there'll be tomatoes and eggplant and peppers, um, even some cut flowers will go. And then for the fall, actually, some of them will be used to put over seed crops. We don't do a lot of seed saving, but we oh. do a little bit of seed saving, and um, we typically do it like one to three varieties per season and just quite a bit of them. And we've sold to a small seed company before. We've sent them to to seed banks, um, and it's that's Wait. mostly a project, I would say. I mean, we get some money from it, um, and sometimes it's been quite profitable. But mostly, it's really about building our skills in seed saving, kind of, yeah, collecting those important skills. Well, you've you've mentioned the importance of of unique varieties in your marketplace and growing things that have a story. Is that I, I assume that the seed saving is part of that overall fits into that overall strategy? Yeah, it definitely is part of it, um, and also just I mean regional adaptation can mean a lot. You know, a few years ago I learned that pretty much all of the arugula seed, the organic arugula seed at least, was grown in Israel. And their conditions would be very different than ours. And even though arugula seed does does quite well on our farm, I think that it has potential to do a lot lot better, be a lot more vigorous, be a lot more disease resistant. Um, and, And so just being able to choose what we want from the potential of a seed over over a number of years, I think is is amazing and incredible. And I think that you know, I don't know that we receive money by not buying those seeds, but I think just what we can expect from the seeds that we are saving, I think can be can can have a big impact. It's it's interesting. I've I've always been kind of a um, we never save seeds on my farm. Um, I spent a couple of years managing the seed savers preservation gardens here in Decorah and, and kind of swore to God, I would never do it again. Um, but you know, the, the, it is, I think it's, it's, it's interesting that, that you guys have, have, have focused on that. I think that, that, uh, and again, if you're, if you're only focused on production, it's really hard to justify doing the seed saving, you know, in a, in a short term cash flow sense. And you guys do have such a, a business sense, but, but here's something where you really are kind of taking, I think, a, a longer view towards, I, 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 I'm, I'm inspired by that. Yeah, I would agree with that. But at the same time, um, the way that we produce the seeds is, um, it's a bit, uh, I, I feel like it falls into into our, our goals in general. Like we choose very specifically to only grow maybe, you know, one, two or three 
different varieties and we would do those in a large, you know, like we do it maybe, I wouldn't say large scale, but we do it in, you know, a bulk amount, that, that one variety. And so we're not saving things here and there and all over the place. It's very specific that this is a, this is a bed that has a seed crop in it. And so we're just managing it in a different way. This lettuce is not being harvested at this point. This lettuce is just being harvested at this point. And so we kind of, We've noticed that we're not really very good at doing, um, you know, at managing crops where we have a little bit here and a little bit there. Um, when we're doing, when we're doing a seed crop, and it's nice for us to do a bulk amount of it. So you mentioned uh, you mentioned using the caterpillar tunnels for for season extension with those seed crops. I that must just be for the kind of that, that final ripening yeah. of the, of the crops. Yeah, we have, yeah. we don't have great conditions for, um, for seed production in, in Nova Scotia, I would say. And we often have fairly wet falls. And so it's pretty much just to protect, to protect those seeds while they're, they're maturing and, and keep them dry and, and it increases their quality overall. So um, one of the other things that you mentioned while we were doing our, our pre-show warm-up is that, that you guys are going to farmer's market next week, even though you haven't been out in the field yet yeah. uh, to, to any great extent. But what um, you, you said you're taking some crops that you actually harvested last fall. Yeah, so we overwinter some crops in our cooler. Um, our dream is to, to build more of a, a proper root cellar. They would still have, a, I guess, we're, our, our vision is actually a hybrid root cellar, but with new technologies so that we can make sure that during the shoulder seasons or during uh, some kind of, of warm temperature, warm temperatures in the winter, that, that we could still maintain good, uh, good, good humidity and, and temperature in there. And the right temperature, but yeah. We, yeah, at this point, we've just been saving some fall crops over the winter to sell in the spring. So things like carrots, kohlrabi, uh, daikon radish, sunchokes, uh, cabbage. Different winters, we have different things in there, but it, uh, yeah, it's always a nice addition. How are you, are obviously turning the temperature down in there to 32 or 34 degrees? Yeah. Yeah. And then, and then what are you doing for humidity control? Cause I think that's a really important part that oftentimes people miss when they're trying to store crops over the winter. Yeah. So, well, the humidity control in the, in the walk-in cooler is not, I would say ideal compared to what we would want to do in a root cellar. Um, so we don't have anything fancy. It's mostly just based on, on checking it. We can, you know, we can ventilate if we need to with the doors um, and just maintaining the temperature. So if it's really cold, then, you know, we, we wouldn't necessarily need to have anything running in there. Um, and actually sometimes when it gets really cold, we'll put in like a a lamp, I guess, turn on a, a light to keep it from freezing. There have been a handful of times, not too many, where we've actually had to put a, a heater in over the winter so things don't freeze. But it doesn't take a lot of management, I would say. we Most things are kept in, in bins that can have lids, uh, or we can remove the lids or remove the lids partially. So some things are based on that. And I mean, we definitely, with the, with the walk-in cooler, we're not expecting a hundred percent survival rate of, of everything that we put into storage. So a fair amount of culling to get ready for market this week. Yeah. Um, so one of the other things that, that I found interesting, um, about you personally, Shannon is, um, and of course, I mean, one of the things that I do when I get ready for these interviews is stuff is I, I stalk people all over the internet. Right. Mm -hmm. But I, you're very clearly involved, uh, both in your farming community and politically, uh, in your, in your farming. Um, I'd be interested in, in hearing some more about that. What I think from what you've talked about already, it's probably pretty clear why you've chosen to do that, but, but what sorts of things are you feeling, um, 
are are needed in Canada and I and I'm guessing in North America in general regarding uh, you know developing the the proper environment for a local food system to really grow and thrive. Hmm. Yeah. Well. Okay. So I never when I when I was. Uh, a farming worker and a farming apprentice, I don't think I ever anticipated that I would want to get involved with things like this necessarily, or it wasn't part of my vision at that point. But prior to starting our farm, we took a farm business planning course and a huge takeaway for both of us that still affects our business all the time was thinking about risk management in general. Um, So one of the courses or one of the classes was all about risk management. And we had to think about all the different risks and ways, ways to mitigate the risks. And this has a huge influence on how we run our business. And, you know, as you said before, that of course, there's, there's production risks, there's weather risks, disease and pest risks, there's marketing, financial risks um, that people commonly think about. Um, but there are also policy risks, and um, and we had we didn't really know what that what that meant when we first took our when we first were writing our business plan. But we thought, well, I guess what we we need to know um, what might what policies might affect us and how we can how we can make our voice heard. So, I mean, some things could be uh, like new food safety regulations. So I know that the Food Safety Modernization Act in the States was was really big. And in Canada, we have a new um, Safe Food for Canadians Act that is in consultation stage right now. Um, so that, of course, can can really affect really affect our business. And, and, you know, once they come out, usually you have maybe 12 months or a certain period of time to come into compliance. And, and some of these policies might require a lot of expense and upgrades. So things like this are really important for us to, to pay attention to and to, I guess, to learn how to, to make sure our voices are heard. I, I heard recently or a few years ago that under Canadian law, at least I don't know if it's the same in the States, but under Canadian law, silence is considered consent. And so I realized that if I didn't say something about if I thought a policy or something was, was not appropriate, if I didn't say something, then I would be, I would be voting yes for that policy the way it was. Um, so through that, both Brian and I became more involved with, with farm organizations. We became involved with with our industry organizations, which I would consider to be the organic um, organizations, also just our, our farm organizations. So Brian's on the board of uh, of our provincial our provincial farm organization and I'm uh, I'm involved with the uh, I'm involved with another farm organization that represents us more nationally. And so, yeah, I think, I think it's been really interesting at this stage in our, in our careers. I think it's, it might've been easy for us to think about, you know, Oh, you know, we'll work on that interesting, you know, policy stuff or, or farmer issues, maybe when we're older, maybe when we have more experience or more knowledge, but it's been really interesting to, to basically start our, our farm career involving ourselves with those things. And I mean, we get lots of benefits. One of them is seeing, seeing a broader agriculture picture in our area and in our country, but also just, you know, the mentorship of, of other farmers who have spent a large portion of their lives working um, on farmer issues and, and being able to learn from them and, and capture their knowledge before before they might retire or, you know, decide no longer to be involved in these things. So it's, even though it does take up some extra time, it's really, it's really fun and interesting. And, and it's been fun to even... Learn about Robert's rules or how to be a board member. (laughs) It is kind of a whole different skill set, isn't it? Yeah, it definitely is. Um, But I I do agree that it's... um, it can be hard, I think, to make time uh, when you're getting started. But I uh, to to be involved in your in your larger community or or in the political setting. But it's I think it's just so important to get that 
that voice of the beginning farmer out there. And, and I think that, 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 you know, that voice changes as you go from, from year one to year 10 in an operation. And, and, uh, I, I think it's just so, it's so critical for, for the proper development of things to, to have everybody in the industry having, having, well, participating in the processes. And I know for me, the connections that I made when I was on serving on boards of directors or, or making a point of getting to uh, annual meetings for organizations uh, in the early years of farming, that those were, those were some really critical connections that I made that I still rely on today. Yeah. I mean, you can make a huge difference even, I guess, given the constraints that you're talking about. So a lot of farmers feel like they don't have a lot of time to do these things. But the people who do show up and, and, and go out to these meetings, their voice is usually the one most represented because so many farmers are staying at the farm. And so there's, you know, much more opportunity um, to have your voice heard when, when there's, you know, you're among the few that actually went out to that meeting. And so, yeah, we've been, I mean, as new farmers, for example, or as young farmers, we've been really inspired by the work in the States from the National Young Farmer Coalition. And we've been part of starting a National New Farmer Coalition in Canada, which is also really inspiring. And I think in both countries, young farmer and new farmer issues are, you know, are, are, are all over the place. People in urban centers are, are talking about it and, and politicians are talking about it and food system activists are talking about it. And I think now is the time where, you know, farmers, farmers' voices are maybe more appreciated and more, more often heard. I, I think you're right. I do think you're right. So um, let's, Let's again uh, take a pivot here, Shannon, and and um, and go to our our questions that we like to ask all of our guests. And I've kind of and I I gave you a little preview of what we're what we're going to hit you with here. But um, so, what is your favorite tool on the farm? I mean, I, it, and if you say broad fork, that's just going to be kind of. <laughs> but I, I guess if you need to say broad fork, say broad fork. No, it's okay. I'm not going to say broad fork. Uh, okay. But this is a really hard question to answer. I actually, a while ago, I wrote a blog post about our five favorite tools and it was five favorite tools. And that was <laughs> even hard to write. Um, but yeah, so thinking about it a lot, I think, I mean, something that we've used ever since the beginning, and I don't know what we could do without it has been our Vermont cart. It's really simple, but we use it. We use it all the time. Um, I also was thinking about our cool bot for our cooler. Brian and I both have always from the first year valued cold storage is such an important an important thing. And so uh the cool bot made it easy to to have affordable cold storage right on. Um I kind of wanted to say a tool that I don't have but that I really want, which is I have always wanted <laughs> ever since well, so I worked as a as a winter intern at Pleasant Valley Farm in New York State. And I remember in the winter using their barrel washer from Grindstone Farm and feeling like I was in heaven. So I've always wanted one of those. At this stage, I don't feel like our farm is necessarily at the point where it makes sense. But I don't know, maybe this is a a personal present. We might have to get ourselves one. It's the, the, uh, it was one of the best investments we ever made on our farm. Really? And we were, we were likewise inspired by Paul and Sandy at, at Pleasant Valley. The, when, when they talked about it, we were like, oh yeah, we need one of those. Yeah. And, uh, it, it really was a life changer for us. Nice. So, yeah. So fun. Yeah. So the Vermont cart, what, what do you like about the Vermont cart in particular? Well, we find it, I mean, it's really easy to carry quite a bit of things with us without thinking about. Um, needing to take a tractor with a trailer. Um, And so we just, I mean, we can move everything around. We use it for pretty much everything. I think there's almost never a moment when, when we're, you know, not going off to do something that we might want to carry more things. And so we just, you know, stick stuff in it and go, we actually have a, and I guess we have two, but one's not truly a Vermont cart and we bought it more recently and it's a little bit smaller 
just a tiny bit smaller and we didn't realize. And so our bins don't fit into it super like perfectly because when we were buying our, our harvest bins, we also purchased them based on the size that it would take up in a Vermont cart, for example, um, or in the van or, and so, yeah, I think I just, I think it's super useful. We use it for uh, taking, you know, seedling trays to the to the field. We use it for harvesting. We use it for things that we're building. I use it for harvesting flowers. It just gets, I think it gets the most use out of anything else. Great. Right. So, um, so then the, the next one I've got for you is what's your favorite thing to grow? I expect this to be similarly difficult. Yeah, that one's really difficult. Um, hmm, Wow. That changes a lot. Um, (laughs) From season, from year to year or from from month to month? Yeah, that's favorite thing to grow. Hmm. Well, hmm. I guess, let me think. I don't know if we really love growing it all the time but we've been amazed at how well melons do on our farm and I guess it's because I don't know our soil seems to love love growing melons they taste amazing and we still we're still learning how to harvest each different kind of melon at the right time and I often feel like the things that I love to grow the most are the things that, that we still have so much to learn about and that we're still always always reading about and and uh, I hadn't worked on too many farms that were growing many melons and so I think I don't know maybe melons it's a it's a hard crop to get right yeah yeah and so I don't know it's the challenge is exciting but they taste they taste so good like I didn't even really love melons before we started growing them but yeah every year we try new varieties and Pretty delicious. Have you have you found a favorite? Um, hmm, a favorite. Well, in general, in general, I'm really loving melons. We're experimenting more with different Charente melons, but cantaloupe. Let me think. Maybe cantaloupe. Sarah's choice was a good variety. Okay. Yeah. Okay. And does well in your northern climates. I mean, you must be pretty cool up there too. Yeah, like we were very surprised, but I think they like the sandy loam. Um, yes. And uh, yeah, they just end up tasting really good. I think I think good drainage allows the melons to, I guess, maybe not have too much water. And then when you eat them, they're not too watery. They taste more sweet. I don't know. We focus, we really focus on... I'm making sure our, our fertility is, is strong, that there's enough minerals and organic matter. We're always working on that. So I don't know. Melons just, I'll say melons. I don't know why. A, if you and, ask me tomorrow, serious? I'd probably say something different. <laughs> okay. Okay. <laughs> and, and finally, if you could go back in time and tell your beginning farmer self one thing, what would it be? Hmm. Yeah, this question was super hard because, I mean, it's kind of the thing about going back in time and what would change and how would you do things differently. But in our first season on this property when we moved here, I really wished that I had worked on a farm that was in its first season um, or maybe second season on a farm that had pretty much had a blank slate. I realized that I had worked on farms that were you know, beautiful and successful and, and, you know, similar to what I wanted to achieve, but it was, I'd never worked on a farm that was basically starting from scratch. And it was, it was hard for us to always think about, you know, whether we were making the right decision or, you know, was this the right place for this or, you know, and even just working with the, you know, the bare bones infrastructure that we are starting with, you know, we've been, I mean, on farms that are well-established, you, you become fairly used to working with, you know, maybe a wash station that's set up and nice and, and a delivery system that's, that's fairly smoothly running a market where everybody knows you and, and fields that have been worked quite a while and are in good shape. 
And so I just, I remembered wishing that I could have learned from, from a farmer just starting out on a new piece of land. I wonder what, I wonder what you could actually learn from a farmer who was just starting out, because I think so much of that is you're just, you're almost automatically making it up as you go along. Yeah, totally. And I, and I don't think it would have been good at an early stage of my, of my farm apprenticing experience, but maybe right before we had started our own, you know, even just to think about things like website and logo and, you know, all those little things that, uh, just in starting a, a business, um, right. that I hadn't really, I hadn't really thought to, to learn about before we started. It's so interesting. You know, you, you, you say even things like a website. Um, I mean, when I started farming, you didn't have to have a website. Right. In fact, we were, we were really unusual because we did. And I think our second year, mm. um, and that made us, that made us weird and different. Right. And, and I think it it is, there are some, there are some challenges and sort of, th- I, I, I like that you mentioned that because I think it's something that to really think through as you're, as you're kind of going through your farm learning experience before you get started, I think you could probably work up something that says, you know, this is what, this is what we're going to need on our farm and, and be, maybe being a little, I know we could have stood to be a little more intentional about um, ahead of time thinking this is where and how we're going to wash the produce. Uh, cause even with all the, we, and I'd spent 10 years working on farms all over the country. And when I landed at my own place, it was, um, I, I think we were harvesting our first crops going, okay, now we need to wash these. Right. Where are we going to get that? You know, where are we going to set up the tent to do that? Right. You know, we hadn't really thought it all through. So I think it's kind of an, it, it, I think it would be an interesting exercise as a, as a beginning farmer or as a pre-beginning farmer to really notice and think through all of those. Well, you, you mentioned the systems that you're, um, that you guys think about over the winter to think about all of those different systems and how you're going to handle those and what are the different elements you need to have in place. I like that. So, um, all right. So now you've mentioned your blog a couple of times and, and I know from, from having looked at that, Shannon, that there's a ton of information on there. That's just on your website, right? Yeah. Our blog is just our website. Okay. And I'm going to let you say the, I'm going to let you say the URL for the website. Sure. It's uh, www.broadforkfarm.com. Okay, great. And we'll link to that in the show notes. And I will also make sure that we, that we have links to the posts you mentioned about the caterpillar, the caterpillars um, in particular, and then uh, as well as the other, the other resources that you've mentioned throughout the throughout the show here. So, um, Shannon, thank you. I feel like this has been a, this has been a, a great interview and I've, I've enjoyed the opportunity to get to know you a little bit better here. Uh, thanks so much, Chris. It was a pleasure talking with you. Oh, thank you. And I, I hope the snow stops soon. I hope so too. All right. So wrapping things up here, I'll say again that this is episode 12 of the Farmer to Farmer podcast and that you can find the notes for this show at farmer to farmer podcast.com by looking on the episodes page or just searching for Jones. Thank you for everyone who has taken the time to leave a rating or review. If you like the podcast, the best way to support us is to make a comment on iTunes or Stitcher. The more fresh comments we get, the higher it drives the show in the ratings, which really does make a difference in how many people this show reaches. If you like the show, I'd encourage you to sign up for my weekly newsletter, The Flying Rutabaga, as well. You can sign up on farmertofarmerpodcast.com or purplepitchfork.com. And one more thing, if you've hung on this long, I'd like to know what questions you, my listeners, have that my guests or I might be able to answer in the podcast. Please let me know on Facebook at Purple Pitchfork or use the contact page on farmertofarmerpodcast.com. Anything about farming and farm life is fair game. And if you want to be anonymous, just let me know and I won't mention your name on air. If we choose your question to use on air, I'll even send you a Farmer to Farmer podcast mug. 